Listeners, welcome to 2050 Miles of Poetry with me, Lee. And me, Charlie. And today is the 1st of May, which is a very strange feeling. How do you feel today, Lee? I feel good. It's my mum's birthday and she's a keen listener. So happy birthday, mum. Happy birthday, Lee's mum. Have you spoken to her yet? Do you know what her day in lockdown holds? I have spoken to her. Um, She informed me that she cleaned the bathroom which sounds like a thrilling birthday treat. Will she be treating herself to a walk, you know, which is the highlight of our lives these days? Yeah, I think she's going to get the one permitted walk. She said she's going to have a scone. She said she wasn't going to stick 65 candles into it. (laughs) Oh, well, you know, it depends on how big the homemade scone is. And um, I sent you something which I I don't know if you do or you don't want to send to your mother, um, but it, it, it amused me. And it's um, Jean Julien, the French uh, graphic designer's illustration of birthdays in lockdown, which is just a sad looking male with a mask over his face and he's all alone with a cake in front of him. It did make me chuckle. Yeah. chuckle. I didn't even connect it to my mum's birthday, though. Isn't that bad? <laughs> I'd already forgotten. <laughs> yeah, that's not great. <laughs> no, I'll send it on to her after this. <laughs> I don't know if oh, she'll God. enjoy it, but... Uh... There you go. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's, it's quite brilliant, actually, what this illustrator is doing, because he's, he's uh, creating lots of amusing graphics and cartoons to explain lockdown. He's got one brilliant one where, if you imagine a horizontal scene, on one side there's a, a square balcony, on the other side there's another, and there's a cloud in the middle, and they're just two neighbours okay. talking at each other. I don't know. Have you experienced this <laughs> in Helsinki, speaking to your neighbours uh, out the window over balconies? No, I've seen a few of my neighbours just outside. One neighbour was seemed quite scared of me when I was putting the bins out the other day. She wasn't coming anywhere near the bin store while I was there. <laughs> she kind of like hovered about 50 metres away, sort of watching me. And then I kind of said hi and then she sort of didn't respond. <laughs> it was quite weird. It does sound like a very strange interaction, yeah. One strange thing has been happening to me every lunchtime, a very noisy neighbour shouts out the window and starts having a conversation with some unsuspecting other neighbours, which is quite amusing to be okay. a fly on the wall to because I'm questioning whether the neighbours on the ground floor really want to speak to the other neighbour <laughs> <laughs> that has begun yeah. the conversation. So, um... We've had our first listener correspondence, Charlie. Oh, how intriguingly. Tell me more. How does that make you feel? Um, apprehensive. <laughs> apprehensive. Well, it's from a young poet called Sean from Cardiff. And he writes, Hi, guys. I found the poem by Lord Byron deeply moving. And I've composed a couplet explaining my reaction. So would you like to hear his couplet? I would love to hear his couplet. So he says, The tears cascaded down so freely and soaked the coat of my beloved Lily. Wow. So I think that raises a couple of questions that maybe other listeners can think about, which is who is Lily and why does he only have her coat? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot of um, intrigue in that couplet. So yeah, other listeners, if you've got any poems you'd like us to read out or any comments about uh, the young poet from Cardiff, please let us know. Brilliant. Okay, that's interesting. Well, I feel... That's a wonderful way to start this podcast because I've got a couple of Welsh poems to read to you a little oh, later. But um, perhaps 
you want to read some exciting things that you've prepared. Yeah, so today I'm going to be talking about the poet Bob Cobbing, who was a poet, a publisher and a performer, born in 1920, and he died in 2002. And he was a pioneer of concrete visual and sound poetry. Is he English or is he... Yeah, yep, he's English. So he was born in Enfield, I think, and lived most of his life in London. I would like to read a few of his. Brilliant. The one I would like to start with is called Poem Square. And it goes like this. This is a square poem. This poem is a square. Is this square a poem? This square is a poem. This square is a poem. Is a poem this square? This is a poem square. A poem square is this poem. This is a square. A square poem is this. Square. This is a poem. This is a poem square. And can you guess what shape that poem is in? I think it's in? circular. Oh, <laughs> close. It's one of the other <laughs> elemental geometries. It's a square. Oh, I couldn't and have guessed that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we can chat about that in a minute. I'll just read another one. This one is called, Are Your Children Safe in the Sea? That's quite alarmist. <laughs> yeah, it is, isn't it? Well, let's see what you think. I do find this one slightly disturbing, I must say. Are your children safe in the sea? Are your children safely in the sea? Are your children safe in the sea? Are your children safe in the sea? Are your children safe in the sea? And that one is quite interesting because, yeah, there is something kind of disturbing about it. But he made several versions of that poem. And the one that I just read you is called the ear version, which, as the name suggests, was designed to be listened to using your ears. But he also made another version that was called the eye version. And I've sent that to you, Charlie. Ooh. And you could open that Let up. Let me open that up. And basically, Bob Cobbing was known for his kind of concrete poetry and visual poetry. And this is a great example of it because... He was known for using printing techniques and typewriter techniques to make poetry that was not even necessarily meant to be read, but was just a visual experience as much as um, an aural one. And in this I version of Are, you, Are Your Children Safe in the Sea, he's basically used the typewriter to type out that poem over and over again using different uh, kind of, some of them are in capitals, some of them are not in capitals, some of them he's put the paper in at angles, some of them he's put the paper in backwards. And basically it's all built up at all these different angles. So it almost just looks like you've got a kind of a woodblock print or something. And he's done loads of different block prints of these six lines over the page. And I quite like it because in a weird way, it sort of does look like an abstract painting of the sea or something like that, like rough waves. Mm. What do you think, Charlie? I think, yeah, it's really interesting. I think it's 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 interesting, the use of words in this way. Um, so they don't really become interpretable or only a couple of words you can see. It's interesting because he's overlaid and overlaid and overlaid. So all you see is like a black mass and a sort of a swish, as you say, like the sea. But then you can pick out just over halfway down 
I can pick out in the sea, in the sea, in the sea, in the sea, in the sea. So you、mm. still pick up quite a lot of the repetition, which is seems to me part of his idea of the poem in the first place. So, yeah, it's a very interesting experience, and it's I think it actually creates something quite beautiful as well. Yeah, I think it's actually a really beautiful artwork on its own. Like I would happily have that. It's interesting what you said about the words sort of not becoming words because. I found this quote from him about his sort of thoughts on poetry, and he said, "Gone is the word as word, though words may be used as sound or shape. Poetry now resides in other elements, and amongst those other elements, he listed ink blots, sneezes, <laughs> sighing, and moaning. <laughs> so this is kind of an ink blot, I guess." But I think he was also in、uh, did a lot of performances where he would kind of just moan、mm. for long periods and kind of make all these fantastic sounds and noises. And there's a lot of YouTube videos if listeners want to check those out where he's very visceral and quite. He's a cool looking man because he's got a big grey beard and a big long grey ponytail, and then he's kind of wailing on the stage and just making all these strange noises. And you can see how he's taken the concept of a poetry reading. And applied the same logic as he has written poetry,、uh, in the the one we just described, basically taking the form and just pulling it apart and changing it completely until it's a completely different experience. Really interesting. And、um, Lee, do you know if Bob was、uh, well received when he was in London? So I wonder, sort of, at what point in his career, how old was he when he started、mm. publishing、okay. more of his work? Yeah, so he was he trained as, a, as an accountant first, and then he worked as a teacher, and it was in the sixties that he began really working as a poet. I think he'd done a few publications in the fifties, but really in the sixties that's when he he became more recognised, and he began to manage this bookshop in London called Better Books. Do they still exist? I wonder. I'm not sure if it's. I don't think it does, but it was more than a bookshop. It was like an art center, basically on Charing Cross Road,、mm-hmm. and it had a stage, a cinema, and a gallery, and it became a kind of center of、um, performance art and radical poetry. And it became kind of one of the main venues of '60s counterculture. Brilliant. So he was kind of managing that, and what I think is really interesting, he's got this real kind of DIY spirit because at the same time, he became a publisher. And he had a lot of his own printing facilities, and he also began working at the Poetry Society residence. And he would basically founded a small press, which was called Writers Forum, and it was a a kind of publishing house and a workshop. So he would invite poets to come and read poetry and things in this Writers Forum, and then they would make pamphlets using the printing material. Amazing, and I think in yeah, it's really cool, isn't it? And I think in the seventies, he even did this thing where he made all the printing presses and stuff public, so anyone could go in, any any member of the public could go in and just print their poetry there if they wanted to. Incredible. Yeah, so it was in the sixties and seventies, and he became a kind of major figure in British counterculture, which was called bomb culture, in kind of reaction to the nuclear bomb, and he was a conscientious objector in World War Two. So he just seems like a really moral and ethically kind of sound guy, very principled, and I really like that he's made his whole life according to those principles. So he's 
doing stuff in a public sphere and just living in his own world, basically, in a really cool way. Brilliant. That really appeals to me. (laughs) (laughs) This sounds like a good plug for, like, what you do in your spare time, Lee, and uh, and an interesting website that we should tack on in the the show notes. (laughs) Yeah, I was wondering, because I've been doing some printing using these Risograph printers, and I think he was using similar kind of duplicators and stuff. And definitely it's really interesting. He was so interested in that visual way that um, that poetry could be manipulated and you could make a different kind of feeling. Yeah, I think it's great. Well, it's interesting because I'm not sure I've come into contact with many poets that actually publish their own work. That sounds to me quite unusual. Mm. It seems like we've come across more poets who have been published. It yeah. seems quite sort of proactive yeah so he was publishing his own work and he was publishing others work so he when he died in 2002 he was still running the writers forum press and he published over a thousand um different publications in that time including ones by alan ginsberg and john's cake john cage so some pretty big names there but also a lot of smaller ones who he i guess met through the workshops that he ran and things like that that's really interesting. And the first book of poems that he published was called ABC in Sound, and that was published in 1964. And maybe I can just read you one of those before we hear yeah, your I poems. Yeah, I would love that. So I don't know the name of this one. I wasn't able to find the name, but this is from that book. And it's laid out as if it's sort of a crossword. So imagine a crossword, and then imagine that instead of it being in a square shape, it's like the top of a mountain or something half of the top of a mountain (laughs) (laughs) if you can imagine that listeners but the letters are all in grids with equally spaced so i'll try and read this to you now sign sound sense symbol signal speech symptom syllable semiosis structure semantics semiotics sign stock synchronic syntactics sign system sign aggregate sign inventory syllabography Sign collective, synonymic signs, symbolic indicator, symbolic assertion, semantic differential, supporting redundancy, socially institutionalized, systematic whole of speech sounds. Shit. (laughs) Brilliant. Which is pretty great. It's pretty great. Well, Lee, you kindly sent this to me as well. And I'm amazed you actually read it. Almost to me, it's it's (laughs) like a, a blur of letters because each letter essentially as you said it forms a grid so from the sign at the top the s is spaced um equally from the i and the i is spaced equally from the g and the g is spaced equally from the n and the sound below has the exact same principle so yeah i'm amazed you actually read that but um really intriguing i'd practiced a couple of times before we spoke (laughs) and luckily this was by far the best it came out very well yeah (laughs) yeah What's the last? And the shit mm. at the end is about five spaces below the rest. So it's it's a different kind of humor than we've had. We've covered quite a lot of poems so far that have that are funny, and I think that's that's another funny one. But it's a different kind of humor. It's not really the words are not funny. Or maybe they are. Maybe he's trying to make a point about the socially institutionalized. Maybe. Yeah, maybe he is. But I like it, and I've. Um, been googling him a lot and I found this book that was published in 2015 which is called book (laughs) so it's book with about five o's 
And that looks like a really, really beautiful publication. And I think I'm going to buy it because it looks so nice. I would implore the listeners to buy it. <laughs> have a look at that. Yeah, buy it, have a look at it. Just Google it and take a look because there's so much amazing images. And there's these ones that he's made with typewriters that are just beautiful in their own right. But then there's also ones that look like they're screen prints or something in two colors. And they're almost sort of... Um, deconstructivist or something or ones that are very symbolic yeah I think it's really um beautiful and interesting and I think it's the kind of book you could just keep going back to and just pop into every now and then it would be quite relaxing and Lee I have to ask because um I think until our last recording neither you or I knew much about concrete poetry which I think is also called figure poems pattern poetry and shape verse and um, mm. how did you come across Bob's work? Because for me, I and is he one of many pattern poets or figure poets or concrete poets? Were there a lot of them? Is he one of very few? Do you get a real sense of how big this movement was? Yeah, I think um, concrete poetry is quite a large movement. Uh, I think he was one of the main British exponents of it. And... The way that I found him was just from Googling concrete poetry, which I'm, you know, sounds a bit uh, dumb, but I think that's just as valid as anything else. Well, it, and... you, it's opened a whole massive yeah, exactly. research. Yeah, exactly. I kind of, well. I don't know about you, but the, the kind of term poetry concrete is something that I've always been aware of, but not really known what it means. I think I just always associated it with kind of modernism. And I guess it is a sort of modernist uh, poetry movement. Mm. I know that Bob Cobbing and other people, other concrete poets as well, were part of this uh, British poetry revival movement in the 60s and 70s. And that was a reaction to a more classical poetry movement called The Movement, which uh, contained people like Philip Larkin and Kingsley Amis. And uh, Larkin and Amis were saying things like, that they wanted to make very simple language that was very classically English. And the poetry revival was kind of making a much more vibrant response to that. That's interesting. And I think also that this links to yours because the the movement were in reaction to a certain poet. So maybe you well, can say about that. Well, it surprises me that the movement... Are you telling me the concrete poetry movement was in reaction to a certain poet? No, no, your your the the movement, which was the Kingsley yes, Amos well, thing. Well, that surprises yeah, me that you reaction. say that actually, because the poets who I want to read you a couple of poems from, actually, Philip Larkin um, has been quoted as saying he considers this poet to be one of the three poets to change the the face of poetry. So it surprises me that mm. you say that actually. But he didn't like him. <laughs> he, maybe he didn't like him, but uh, but he is quoted as saying that. So that does surprise me. Okay, interesting. Uh, who are we talking about, Charlie? Maybe we should let the listeners in on it. That is a good... Well, well may, maybe maybe perhaps we should let the, um, let the listeners guess. So interestingly, Bob Dylan is said to have changed his name to Bob Dylan from Robert Allen Zimmerman because of this poet. So we don't know if wow. this is... Uh, if this is just a rumour, but it's the rumour that has the most traction. So the poet that I want to talk about today is Dylan Thomas. And 
interestingly I also went through a similar process of trying to find out more about concrete poetry and I found a concrete poem that Dylan Thomas had written which surprised me because I didn't really think that he was interested in that type of poetry Mm. yes I found one and I think that perhaps this is to do with influences while he was going backwards and forwards to America which I know was made a, a massive impression on him so um, let me read that to you, Lee, and perhaps you can, can guess what shape it's in. And I recall that okay. we talked about right. last time, um, you know, poems like uh, Grandpa's Jumpers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So keep, keep that in mind. <laughs> okay, okay. Okay, let me... Maybe this is your nan's jumper. <laughs> you know, who knows? So this poem is for, from Vision and Prayer... Um, which was came out in 1946. I must lie still as stone by the wren bone, wall hearing the moan of the mother hidden and the shadowed head of pain casting tomorrow like a thorn and the midwives of miracles sing until the turbulent newborn burns me his name and his flame and the winged wall is torn by his torrid crown and the dark throne from his loin to bright light okay i think that it might be in the shape of a little baby of a little baby (laughs) yeah (laughs) um well it's a diamond (laughs) but but actually this does bring up an interesting uh, point that I was thinking about so you've sent me through the poems of Bob and um, all mm. of those are in lots and lots of different graphical patterns but in my mind actually I was thinking that really there are so few actual sort of shapes that you could create a poem into but maybe that's just my thought. Yeah I think it depends um, maybe what your medium is because I I kind of agree. I know what you mean, because obviously with if you're writing with a typewriter or something, at first it feels like there's only so many kind of lines you can go down and so many spaces you can put between things that there's only a certain amount. I guess that's why Bob Cobbing's stuff seems so radical, because he's just not even playing by the rules of the typewriter. He's just going absolutely mental on it and just like overlaying them an insane amount. Because the poetry concrete that we were looking at last week that looked like the granddad's jumper, that was a very rigid kind of form, these very rigid diamonds. And this is so free. And I'm imagining that maybe the one that you just read by Dylan Thomas in the diamond shape, is that quite rigid? It's a very rigid... It's quite a sensible diamond shape. It's a very sensible diamond. And the whole book, Vision and... Or sorry, the whole poem that makes up Vision and Prayer, um, Mm. from which I read one page of... Um, it, okay. Each is a is it makes up a diamond, so they're all very rigid. Okay. And mm. interestingly, the concrete poetry I was looking at online, some of it felt quite simplistic. So there was a poem about a swan, and it was in the shape of a swan. And so uh. for me, it was quite <laughs> exciting then to see Bob Cobbins' work because it really broke apart the geometries which I considered, and it surprised me. Yeah, and it's not really literal like that. I know I read the one about the square that's in the shape of a square, but that almost feels like that's a kind of um, parody or something. Maybe not parody, but it's... It's playing, isn't it? Yeah, it's playing, exactly. It's not like saying, 
it's not as dumb as saying, oh, this is a poem about a swan that's in the shape of a swan. <laughs> yeah. Not to say, I mean, I don't know anything about that poet. Maybe they're amazing. <laughs> so that doesn't sound great no, yeah, to me. Yeah, it didn't seem great to me. So you really opened yeah. it up to another element. And um, so, and I think perhaps for, for Bob Cobbin's work, it adds another layer. But um, with Dylan Thomas's poetry, it's not really adding much to the poem for me. And I thought yeah. that, that was quite interesting. And so... And this was the only example of um, Dylan Thomas's work, which I could find in this concrete poetry form. So I wanted to read you a couple of other poems and then actually think more about why he got this from his time in America and all these influences that brought in Mm. that were brought into his life from this time and tie that back a little bit into what we're going to at the moment. So the next thing I'm going to read you is a poem I found in this lovely poetry book I have called Poetry of the 30s, which is a a Penguin classic. And um, it's really interesting to put Dylan Thomas contextually in his time, so to consider everything else that was happening while he was alive, if that makes sense. So to give you the context, World War I was um, obviously 1914 to 1918, The Great Depression began in 1929 and ended in the 30s. And then World War II was 1939 to 1945. So it's interesting then to think about Dylan and when he came to be. So he was born in 1914 and he died in 1953 at the really young age of 39. So his life was really, really affected by these three major things that happen throughout them. And I think that that really informs his poetry. And the amazing thing and the fascinating thing about him, and I suppose the point you're making is that Bob's poetry is very modern. I actually think that Dylan Thomas's poetry was quite modern and surprising for the 30s and the time because there were a lot of other poets um, of the age who were talking about the Great Depression and quite um they were talking about the time they were living in but Dylan Thomas um his poetry was still modern and it was quite a lot of things at once but at the same time it was looking back to nature and sort of tying that into his life in America and London so um let me let me read you a poem which I quite like and it's um I see the boys of summer I see the boys of summer in their ruin, laying the gold tithings barren, setting no store by harvest freeze the soils. There in their heat the winter floods, of frozen loves they fetch their girls, and drown the cargoed apples in their tides. These boys of light are curdlers in their folly, sour the boiling honey. The jacks of frost they finger in the hives. There in the sun the frigid threads. Of doubt and dark they feed their nerves. The signal moon is zero in their voids. I see the summer children in their mothers. Split up the brawned womb's weathers. Divide the night and day with fairy thumbs. There in the deep with quartered shades. Of sun and moon they paint their dams as sunlight paints the shelling of their heads. I see that from these boys shall men of nothing, stature by seedy shifting, 
or lame the air with leaping from its heats. There from their hearts the dog-dayed pulse of love and light bursts in their throats. Oh, see the pulse of summer in their ice. But seasons must be challenged or they totter into a chiming quarter where, punctual as death, we ring the stars. There in his night the black-tongued bells the sleepy man of winter pulls nor blows back moon and midnight as she blows. We are dark derniers, let us summon death from a summer woman, a muscling life from lovers in their cramp, from the fair dead who flush the sea, the bright-eyed worm on Davy's lamp, and from the planted womb the man of straw. We summer boys in this four-winded spinning, green of the seaweed's iron, hold up the noisy sea and drop her birds, pick the world's bull of wave and froth, to choke the deserts with her tides and comb the county gardens for a wreath. In spring we cross our foreheads with the holly. Hey-ho, the blood and berry, and nail the merry squires to the trees. Here love's damp muscle dries and dies. Here break a kiss in no love's quarry. Oh, see the poles of promise in the boys. I see you boys of summer in your ruin, man in his maggots barren, and boys are full and foreign in the pouch. I am the man your father was. We are the sons of flint and pitch. Oh, see the poles are kissing as they cross. Mm, wow. So what do you like about that? Because I must admit I'm struggling. <laughs> You're struggling. I just thought there were quite yeah. a lot of beautiful images of sort of summer. And I feel at the moment, um, you know, I was born in the countryside, but I'm locked up in the city and can't leave. And mm. I quite like these beautiful sort of images and it sort of takes me somewhere else. And that's what I'm enjoying in it. And I think that that's interesting because Dylan, through a lot of his life, he was most productive when he was writing, when he was actually in Wales. And Okay. He was. He wrote, I think, about two hundred works in his late teens, and that formed two of the first books of his that were published. And um, wow. when it, he travelled through America four times, and he only ever wrote one poem about that time. So I just think that it, it's the pull to sort of the rural, rural idyll. Uh, pull to home pull to home maybe or sort of me looking out the window at the fairly green uh, London I see outside but thinking oh it would be lovely to be out of the city but sadly the popo will get me (laughs) (laughs) weirdly the kind of main image that comes to my mind is that is it a Hovis advert or something that famous advert where it's like the boy riding down the hill on the bike through all the cobbled streets and stuff that's what springs to my mind. <laughs> Which doesn't sound great for you then, huh? <laughs> no. <laughs> I think it is something about the language. Maybe you just have to spend longer with the words and maybe maybe those are actually better poems to read yourself than have them read to you where you can be more kind of with the words rather than kind of hearing them just once. Yeah, well, it's very interesting because like, perhaps I don't do them justice because, um, again... He has. I think you do. <laughs> you are very kindly, but um, but he has the most incredible voice. And um, interestingly, 
I was didn't realise until researching more about uh, Dylan Thomas's life that he played a big role during the war because he was one of um, he worked for the BBC and he did a lot of broadcasts. Um, so during World War Two, okay. there was no television. And I think at 6pm at night, all of the radio was cut off. So he did a lot of daytime mm. broadcast to keep morale up. And um, wow. I thought that perhaps, well, maybe this will work for you, Lee. <laughs> so I'm going to read you one of the poems that, again, he wrote about Swansea, which was where he was born and the whales of his okay. childhood. Um, and I wonder yeah. if you might enjoy this a little bit more. But um, okay. we will see. But, you know, it doesn't. you're not mm. Welsh, so I don't know, you know, how how much this will pluck your heartstrings, but we will see. I've lived in Wales, though, so it might remind me of nice days. Perhaps it will, perhaps it will. Nice days in Welsh club or something. <laughs> Slightly different Wales to the sort of the rural yeah. one, but yeah. Yeah, I did smell the beer and feel the sticky floor. <laughs> <laughs> Super. So, so the, the poem that I just read was I See the Boys of Summer, and that was published in 1934 in 18 poems. Um, this next poem I'm going to read was one of his poems from the period between 1934 and 1953. And this um, this poem is set in Cumdonkin Park. I don't know if my Welsh pronunciation is on point there, Lee, but um, it's in Swansea, uh, and he referred to Swansea um, very loving, lovingly as the ugly, lovely, crawling, sprawling uh, place of his birth. <laughs> so there you go. So let me read you this. The Hunchback in the Park by Dylan Thomas The Hunchback in the Park, a solitary mister, propped between trees and water, from the opening of the garden lock that lets the trees and water enter, until the Sunday sombre bell at dark, eating bread from a newspaper, drinking water from the chained cup that the children fill with gravel, in the fountain basin where I sailed my ship, Slept at night in a dog kennel, but nobody chained him up. Like the park birds, he came early. Like the water, he sat down. And mister, they called, hey mister, the truant boys from the town, running where he had heard them clearly, on out of sound. Past lake and rookery, laughing when he shook his paper, hunchbacked in mockery, through the loud zoo of the willow groves, dodging the park keeper, with his stick that picked out leaves and the old dog sleeper, alone between nurses and swans, while the boys among willows made the tigers jump out of their eyes to the roar on the rockery stones and the groves were blue with sailors. Made all day until bell time, a woman figure without fault, straight as a young elm, straight and tall from his crooked bones, that she might stand in the night after the locks and chains all the night in the unmade park, after the railings and shrubberies, the birds, the grasses, the trees, the lake, and the wild boys, innocent as strawberries, had followed the hunchback to his kennel in the dark. Mm, wow. Yeah, very vivid. I, I think that he's just describing um, one of his experiences in this park where he grew up, and this is what... Uh, again mm. a poem from when he was a lot younger but I imagine that uh, when this was broadcast on the BBC in wartime perhaps mm. Londoners of then felt the same as I do now that they couldn't get out and it was quite lovely mm. to have these vivid images of sort of somewhere else 
And I know that yeah. uh, Dylan's poems have always been very successful in America and he would get 1,000 people audiences and that was because of the exoticness to them of the countryside. But I suppose... Yeah, how interesting. Which is quite interesting, but I suppose uh, maybe you always want something more when you can't have it, don't you, perhaps? Mm, that's true. One thing that that was just making me think was of the two poets we've read today, they're actually very similar birth dates. So 1914 versus 1920. So six years difference. But Dylan Thomas had already died by the time that Bob Cobbing even began to kind of publish or write. So it makes you wonder a couple of things. How did Bob Cobbing's experiences prior to writing affect his writing? And kind of what would Dylan Thomas be writing if he'd lived longer, I guess? Because I know that Bob Cobbing was a conscientious objector during the war. So he had a very different role. Well, well, but interestingly, um, I think um, Dylan Thomas, you know, he obviously wasn't actually involved in the the wartime effort in that he wasn't abroad Mm. and fighting anybody. He was he was uh, working to make money. Yeah, so do you know why he wasn't fighting? He was wasn't he, fighting. Uh, injured I think or he had or... asthma. So um, throughout okay. his life, he he was quite unwell for periods, and he was a big drinker. And I think that 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 meant his health deteriorated to the point that he died at thirty nine in New York. Okay. Yeah. But he had asthma, and that's why he wasn't accepted. But yeah, no, I I, yeah. I see your point. Well, it's really interesting. Um, I did some reading and um, Bob sounds like his life was fascinating and that he ended up being more of this uh, artist slash poet slash publisher. And mm. Dylan, he was he was a writer and he was a performer and he was, yeah, obviously because he was writing all this propaganda, I think that there are questions on whether he would have pursued that after his death, which is quite interesting. Yeah, he was very commercially successful, wasn't he? So in some ways you can almost imagine that he might have just become kind of a national treasure, part of the kind of mainstream establishment. Did you have another Dylan Thomas one you'd like to read, Charlie? I do, actually. And um, um, so there are two things I want to read, actually. Firstly, I want to read something that I think is very poetic, and it's his description of um, one of the places where he spent a lot of his life working in a solitary shed. So he had this very surreal experience because he lived between New York and travelling around 40 locations in America. And then he'd come back to somewhere in rural Wales called Lohan. And um, so he he was pulled between these two complete extremes. Um, so, So I just want to read you a little bit about Lohan and sort of the end of his life. So, um, off and on, up and down, high and dry, man and boy, I've been living now for 15 years or centuries in this timeless, beautiful, balmy town, in this far forgetful, important place of herons, cormorants, known as Billy Duckers, castle, churchyard, gulls, ghosts, geese, feuds, scares, scandals, cherry trees, mysteries, jackdaws in the chimneys, bats in the belfry, Skeletons in the cupboards, pubs, mud, cockles, flatfish, curlews, rain and human, often all too human beings. And though still I am very much a foreigner, I am hardly ever stoned in the streets anymore and can claim to be able to call several of the inhabitants and a few of the herons by their Christian names. Now some people live in Lohan, 
because they were born in Luhan and saw no good reason to move. Others migrated here for a number of curious reasons, from places as distant and improbable as Tonopandi or even England, and have now been absorbed by the natives. Some entered the town in the dark and immediately disappeared and can sometimes be heard on hushed black nights, making noises in ruined houses, or perhaps it is the white owls breathing close together, like ghosts in bed. Others have almost certainly come here to escape the international police or their wives, and there are those too who still do not know and will never know why they are here at all. You can see them any day of the week, slowly, dopely, wandering up and down the streets like Welsh opium eaters, half asleep, in a heavy, bewildered daze. And some, like myself, just came one day for the day and never left, got off the bus and forgot to get on again. Whatever the reason, if any, for our being here, in this timeless, mild, beguiling island of a town with its seven public houses, one chapel in action, one church, one factory, two billiard tables, one St Bernard without brandy, one policeman, three rivers, a visiting sea, one Rolls Royce selling fish and chips, one cannon cast iron, one chancellor flesh and blood, one Portreeve, one Danny Ray, and a multitude of mixed birds. Here we just are, and there is nowhere like it anywhere at all. And there's one other very interesting thing I just want to read um, about his time here. That was quite a piece of writing, wasn't it? It was quite a piece of writing. And I wonder if you perhaps yeah. enjoyed that more than his poetry, Lee, or do you feel very little as ever? <laughs> <laughs> Dead inside. <laughs> no, I did enjoy that. I enjoyed the second poem you read as well. That brought back more memories for me than the Hover <laughs> I want to read you a little bit from the person um, who he was married to, Caitlin. Uh, who he actually met in a pub and married the following year, which is interesting, and um, which talks a little bit about his daily routine, and she wrote about this in her book. The best part of the morning in Browns, putting bets on horses, listening to local gossip, drinking slow consecutive pints of disgustingly flat, bitter beer, muzzly back to late lunch of one of our rich, fatty stews, always eaten alone, apart from the children. Then, blown up with muck and so- somnolence, up to his humble shed and bang into intensive scribbling, muttering, whispering, intoning, bellowing and juggling of words till seven o'clock prompt. Those five hours of labour would produce only two or three lines. The evening he would spend at a pub in drink and brilliant repartee. (laughs) It's interesting if you then contrast that with sort of Bob Cobbing being the head of this sort of art centre, very socially minded, very public minded. It's a very different image of the poet than the kind of tortured soul drinking his woes away and writing, you know, a couple of lines alone in his shed than this kind of convivality in the better bookstore that you can imagine in the 60s with all these different poets around performing and wailing and kind of enjoying themselves. It doesn't sound like Dylan Thomas was enjoying himself very much, does it? I don't think so. I think I think he had quite a sad end of his life because um, after this period of time, he struggled and struggled to write poetry. And um, okay. it's sort of... And then he was getting more and more unhealthy as he would go to uh, America. And th- there was just this incredible contrast between a UK on rations and then he'd go to mm. America and... Um, 
he'd be he'd be eating like a t-bone steak which was a week's worth of uk rations for a whole family so i think that that he just had this i think a very strange experience but i think that maybe that's the difference in that when dylan was making his work bob was doing other work and then perhaps when um the economy was a little bit better that's when bob started being a poet and so he could but maybe i wonder if those forces made it a little mm. bit less yeah restrictive and less conducive yeah. to that kind of atmosphere exactly. and perhaps who yeah yeah maybe that maybe also some just uh personality traits <laughs> perhaps yeah yeah okay and, and i just want to there's one other thing which i think is quite intriguing <laughs> about uh dylan is he he's known as a scandalous impish figure on the london literary scene of the mid-30s so, um, okay. yes, it, he does seem like the opposite of Bob, but I think he sounds wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let, Give me Bob anyway. <laughs> I, I, think, I think it's a, a little bit about our, our, our characters. <laughs> well, I think that's been really good, really interesting to learn a bit about him because he's one of those major literary figures that I actually knew nothing about and I've never read a Dylan Thomas poem before. Yeah, and a rock and, and roll poem. you poet. know the name... <laughs> Yeah, and although you know the name from popular culture, yeah, I didn't know anything about him. So it is interesting to hear his life. Well, maybe to finish this off, I think we'd like to try something with another Bob Cobbing poem, which is to kind of try and explore the more performative aspect of his work. And we're going to try and perform together a piece called Chamber Music, um, which when you look at it laid out on the sheet, it's basically one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve identical patterns that are sort of like imagine Union Jack flags, but without any colour and just kind of made of words. Are you and trying to tell us that you a... miss the UK, Lee? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Just seeing Union Jacks yeah. everywhere. If you can think of a less patriotic description, I'm happy to go with that. <laughs> let me let me consider it. What would you say it? they look let me like? Consider it. <laughs> Yeah, I do think they look like Union Jacks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My understanding is that each of these little kind of symbols made of words is a set that you can almost read the words in any order and they will make a pleasing uh, arrangement. The idea is that it's a bit like a chamber music performance where you have several people playing together. And the idea is that each person reading this poem has a different one of these sets and they kind of read them over each other with a play of rhythm and picking the words and saying them whenever they want to. And I think it kind of gradually builds up. Continual, Cottage, 
relaxed, continued, mad, scattered, gradual, waxed, spanning, so that was our performance of chamber music. Hope you enjoyed that. <laughs> Not sure how well that went, but hopefully there's something there. And we think that um, came out in the late 60s, didn't we, Lee? Yeah, around 90, uh, 66, 67. It feels very, like, trippy. For me, it's what I imagine the 60s as being like. <laughs> mm, yeah. That was great. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Lee. Have a lovely week. Yeah, you too. How's the weather in London now? Do you think you're going to have a good weekend? It's a little bit overcast. <laughs> yeah, same here. Maybe another day to uh, stay inside reading poetry. Fingers then. crossed. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that would be delightful. <laughs> awesome. Great. Thanks for listening. Thank you, listeners. Bye. Bye. I'm good, thank you. You are quite the visual delight today, Lee, over Skype. Um, I see your stripy red and white T-shirt and behind you there's just a stripy blue and white throw and that's quite enjoyable, I must say. Yeah, what a nice way to start the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no hello to the listeners, just my stripy delight. <laughs> yeah, maybe we can you couldn't wait around. to get it out. <laughs> <laughs> I can't contain it. You look you look really great. <laughs>